Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. You might describe it like this. Abraham Kuyper said this, There is not a square inch of the universe over which Jesus Christ does not cry, Over recent years, Dr. Corbett has given much attention to the Old Testament prophet of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is rich with messages for us even now and full of evidence of God's incredible sovereignty. Tonight, Dr. Corbett takes us again to the book of Jeremiah as we look at the themes of Jeremiah tonight, the sovereignty of God. Get in the way of your word, but to hide behind it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 1. It is on the screen, but it would be great to... Read along with me. It says this, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So this helps us to date when Jeremiah prophesied. So if I was to ask a question and put all the prophets of the Old Testament on cards and say, can you arrange them in order? Could you tell me when and where they occur? There won't be an exam on this, but... Let me help you out here, and for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you the whole lot so you can have a look at it. This, this gives you an idea of when and where the, when they occur and where in the Bible, perhaps, you'll see them occur, these prophets. Now, the, the three or the four in the, the centre there are considered the major prophets. Now, major is, is not necessarily anything to do with the importance of their book, not even necessarily. As you notice, Daniel's only 12 chapters, and yet he's considered a major prophet. So it's not necessarily the length of their book either. So the first major prophet is Isaiah, and you'll see down the side over here, it gives you an approximate time period. So if you think that Isaiah was around about 700, prophesying around 758 BC, so that's the 8th century BC, And then you see after, about 150 years or so after him comes Jeremiah, who was born around about 620 BC or so. And when you think that Jeremiah prophesied, as we've just read in verse 3, up until the captivity of the Jews by Babylon. And that happened in 586 BC. So you can see the, the time frame there. The contemporaries of Jeremiah... These are Zephaniah and Habakkuk and also Ezekiel. So Ezekiel would have only been a few years younger than Jeremiah. And one of the things that I, perhaps showing you the clip from the movie, will highlight to you is just how incredibly young Jeremiah was when God called him to be a prophet. He was very young and he would have been just old enough to to have been permitted into as we saw there into the temple, which means he probably would have had a manhood ceremony, which means he, he's probably around about 13 or so at this stage because um, parents, you might be interested to know that a 13-year-old boy was considered a man 
today. I think the government recognises them at about the age of 25. In Britain they do anyway. You're not considered an adult male until the age of 25. How times have changed. Mind you, I've met some who are 35 that I wouldn't... Anyway, this is another story. So Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah and he, he, we, we know he would have been on the streets when he saw his slightly older colleague Jeremiah prophesying on the streets. And we, we see that Daniel, who was toward the, the start of the 5th century, we know he too would have heard Jeremiah. The reason we know that is because he was in what's called the third wave of, of captives who were taken to Babylon. And this is the very thing that Jeremiah prophesied. And we just read in verse 3 that Jeremiah's ministry extended up until the fifth month after the Jews were taken into captivity. This shows you that Daniel, uh, we read also in Daniel uh, chapter 9 verses 1 to 3 that the copy of what Jeremiah had been prophesying was actually what the word is codified. It had been written down. And, and we know that because Daniel says in chapter 9 of his book, in verses 1 to 3, I was reading the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So he was very aware of the prophecies. And this is one of the things that makes, for me, Jeremiah remarkable, is that what we read in, in these 52 chapters shows us that, that some of the things that Jeremiah prophesied happened within weeks. Some of them happened within months. And some of them happened over decades. So we're introduced to Jeremiah at, at around about the age of 13 or so. We, we say farewell to him around about the age of 70 or so. And in that time, we see everything he said would happen within the time frame he said it would happen, happened. Knowing this, it makes it, I would say, almost impossible for me to be an atheist because the evidence for the God of the Bible if all I had was Jeremiah that would be enough to persuade me that the Bible is divinely inspired because the amount of guesswork required to get it right 100% of the time over a 50 or 60 year prophetic ministry is the odds are impossible just to guess that. So why this helps you to frame it, so we know Malachi, or if you're from Italy, this is the book of Malachi. It's the last book, that's a joke, by the way. <laughs> that sort of puts it where the Old Testament finishes off, right? So that, that helps you to time frame it. So why do I think the book of Jeremiah is so important? Because I really do. This is, for your information, part 187 in the Jeremiah series. And, and that's not a brag, that's, that's meant to say, I really, truly believe this is an extremely profound book. We have just recently been through the book of Revelation, which I'll show in a moment. Only makes sense if you understand the book of Jeremiah. But here's why I think Jeremiah is so important. Firstly, he's a type of Christ. In fact, I can count about 12 similarities between Jeremiah and Jesus. And it's uncanny. And, and someone said, their names start with J. No, that's actually not one of the 12. Secondly, just as Jeremiah and Jesus prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem, just as they both were faithful in a generation that they both described as the most wicked generation, these are some of the similarities, 
just as Jeremiah was told never to marry and Christ obviously never married. These are some of the, the parallels. The second profound thing about the book of Jeremiah is, it's, I'm going to use this expression, it bookends the, the prophetic statements by Moses. Moses is called the prophet, the prophet. He, he's like the preeminent prophet. And when he speaks, it, it, it's almost as if he's I, I, got it. I'll, I'll just tell them now. And it, it, it's coming almost, almost immediately directly from the mouth of God as Moses speaks. And for the sake of time, I'll, I'll just remind you, if you're taking notes, you might want to note this down. This is just one of the examples. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 down to 27. Moses said this, and, and if you know anything about Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Tero means second. Onomy is the, the word that means law, second giving of the law. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And the, the reason it was given the second time is because the original generation that came out of Egypt, they all died. So Deuteronomy is children's church, literally speaking to the children of Israel, the genera- young kids. And Moses is telling these children whose parents have all died, the ones who came through the Red Sea on dry ground. Now he's speaking to the children. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what I told your parents. They didn't listen and they died. So now you need to listen to this and hear what I'm saying. And this is what he said in Deuteronomy from chapter 4, verses 25, 26, 27. When, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to the Jordan over the Jordan to possess you will not live long in it but will be utterly destroyed verse Deuteronomy 4:27 and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you out. Verse 28, and there you will serve gods of wood and stone and the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. And by the time Jeremiah is prophesying in, in that time period that I showed you, around about the time of Isaiah, if you understand that Israel is a slither of land just on the, the just near the coast of the Mediterranean, and the ten tribes of the twelve tribes sort of lived north in in, in an area known as Ephraim, and and the two tribes, which was Judah and Benjamin, which surrounded Simeon, uh, these these people, they are the people that Jeremiah is prophesying to. And these 10 northern tribes around the time of Isaiah are taken away by the Assyrians. And they've gone, just as Moses said. And why? For exactly the reason Moses gave. They forsook the Lord and began to worship idols. And now Jeremiah is telling the people, the same thing is going to happen to you because you have forsaken God, his word, his ways, and you've gone after idols. And who were the, the chief promoters of this idolatry the priests of Israel and so Jeremiah prophesies nothing new he just gives the details God had already declared it through Moses that this would happen here's the third reason why Jeremiah is so important he's the last pre-exilic prophet 
Now, some of you are going, oh, yeah, that's awesome. What's pre-exilic mean? I'm glad you asked. When Babylon came and took Judah and Benjamin, those two southern tribes, off to Babylon, where it was then that the Babylonians nicknamed them. They, they became known from that point on as Jews because they were from Judah. So if you really want to be pedantic, anyone before then was not a Jew. They were an Israelite or a Hebrew. That's just being pedantic, but it, it's a statement of fact. When they went into exile into Babylon, that was called the exile. Here's a little bit of English grammar. Pre-exile means before then. Pre-exilic means this, that Jeremiah was the last prophet before Judah went into exile. Now this, this makes him, I, I think, really important because Moses actually said, when this time happens, God will raise up for you a prophet to warn you. And Jeremiah is the fulfillment of that mosaic, that prophecy by Moses. Here's the fourth reason why Jeremiah is so important. His prophecies form the language of New Testament prophecy. If you don't understand Jeremiah's prophecies, you have not got a hope of understanding the book of Revelation, Matthew chapter 24, because when Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 says exactly what Jeremiah prophesied would happen in his day, the disciples immediately got into gear. It was like, click, okay, we're with you. We know what you just said. Now you better explain yourself. Because Jesus said not one stone of this temple will be standing upon another. Exactly what Jeremiah had said. And Jesus' disciples knew exactly why Jeremiah had said it. And that was because God's people, the Jews, had forsaken God and most especially their leaders. So when Jesus says exactly the same thing, the disciples ask, when will this be? What will be the sign of the end of the age, the age of the temple? Not the end of the world, by the way. And what will be the sign of your coming, not return, coming in judgment? Because that was exactly what Jeremiah said God was going to do. He was going to come in judgment to Jerusalem. And the Babylonians were used as his instrument of judgment. So when we talk about this theme that I want to really focus on now, the sovereignty of God, I think we should ask the question, what does that mean? What, what does sovereignty mean? Well, in a, in a word, sovereignty means to rule. To rule, like a king, the sovereign over a nation, rules. But in God's sense, that rule is far more broad. We find expressions of it here. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Back in the old days, we used to sing a song like that. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything? Since I'm the only one singing, we're just... Because normally, when my old pastor used to do that, everyone just broke in and joined with him and, and so... But it didn't work. That's one verse. Here's another verse. Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 24. And I'm going to come back to this one as well because this is a profound one. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. What, a, what about? Well, here it is. That I am... The Lord, and I want you to notice the capitals, L-O-R-D, who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the capital L, capital O, capital R and capital D. So what 
I want to show you is that the English translators of the Bibles that you have, whether you have them electronically or whether you have them in hard copy, they want, they want to capture this concept of the sovereignty of God in this title, Lord. It's a particular Hebrew word to which there is no English equivalent. And because of that, nearly every English translation, with the exception of the King James Version of uh, 1611, which was finalised in 1670, translates this word, Lord. And they translate it by capitalising every letter. And if you, if you are one of those rare people that after the, the Bible has 66 books plus a couple of others, and one of the others is the Book of uh, Index, and, be, and, and just before the Book of Index, there's actually a thing in your Bibles, if you look right near the start, and it will say explanation and features. And it actually, it'll, it'll, it'll tell you about this. Nearly every English Bible I've read says, we need you to understand that we don't have a word in English for this word that captures the sense that God is sovereign. So we're going to use a made-up word. It's capitals, L-O-R-D. In Hebrew... It's the word Yahweh. It's similar to another Hebrew word, Adonai, which is master. And the English translators, they, they will show you that that is a different word by capitalising L, then lowercase o-r-d. By the way, I said that the King James Bible didn't do that. They actually invented another word by taking the consonants of Yahweh, which because Hebrew has no vowels, by the way, and they took the consonants of Yahweh and they took the vowel sounds of Adonai and merged it to create a whole other word and that word anyone know that word Jehovah it's a completely made-up Germanic word used by the King James translation so the next time the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on your door and say ha your Bible doesn't use this special word well neither did God God didn't use it either it was invented by the King James translators because they didn't know what English word to use either. That's just by the way. If you do say that to a Jehovah's Witness, please be nice, as you say. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 7, speaks of the new covenant. And the essence of the new covenant is that those people who come into the new covenant, which Jesus Christ would bring, is that they would have this knowledge that God is sovereign, put into their hearts in an intuitive way. And this is how Jeremiah prophesies the new covenant. I will give them a heart, all those who come into the new covenant, to know that I am the Lord. See how it's spelt? And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return or turn to me with their whole heart. So, I still haven't really answered the question, but how do you define sovereignty? I've, give, I've told you essentially it means to rule, but when it comes to God, we, that, that's not even it yet. One of the greatest theologians who played a, a huge influence on my life, and just after I became a Christian, his, his book, The Holiness of God, shaped me like none other. When I became a, a youth pastor, the first Bible study program we did with our youth group was hey guys we're going to study this book called the holiness of God it's profound and R.C. Sproul who died three weeks ago 
said this. In fact, when he was asked the question, how do you define the sovereignty of God? He did what all good teachers do. He asked another question. And here it is. If there is any element of the universe that is outside of his authority, then he no longer is God over all. In other words, sovereignty belongs to deity. Deity means God. Sovereignty is a natural attribute or quality of the creator. God owns what he makes and he rules what he owns. And that was how R.C. Sproul described God's sovereignty. We might describe it like this. Uh, Abraham Kuyper said this, There is not a square inch of the universe over which Jesus Christ does not cry, Mine. And that comes close to describing the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. I think there's some pastoral things to be said about this, and I'll say them in a moment. How does the New Testament describe the sovereignty of God? Well, here's one of the verses that I think sums it up pretty well. It's Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. And this is critical to understanding sovereignty. Having obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, another element of sovereignty, according to the purpose, another element of sovereignty, of him who works, another element of sovereignty, all things, another element of sovereignty, according to his counsel, another element of God's sovereignty, of his will, the essence of God's sovereignty. So let me read that without my commentary. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this is where I hope I can move you to as a congregation as I try to pass to you this morning. That you will move to a place where when trial, trouble and tribulation comes your way, and let me tell you, 2018 will have its fair share for you, that you will remember the essence of what the new covenant does, which is give you a heart to know that God is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that he is Lord. And that you will remember, for good or for bad, from my perspective, God only does good. He only does good. He loves me and he only ever intends good for me. And if you get the sovereignty of God, you'll get that as well. And I want to show you the steps that God takes in his sovereignty. You might want to write these down because I'm going to move really quickly with these. But these are the sovereign steps that God takes when he exercises his sovereignty. Firstly, a plan. God has a plan. We read that in Ephesians 1.11. Secondly, God has a purpose. So you can have a plan and no real purpose for it. But God has a purpose. God has a purpose. Thirdly, God's sovereignty involves either people or a person. There's not one person that falls outside of his sovereignty. Fourthly, God's sovereignty involves promise. He has certain promises associated with his sovereignty. Fifthly, God's sovereignty involves a plea. A plea. Sixth, God's sovereignty involves prophecy. And we read 
in the Minor Prophets that God says this, I will never do anything involving you unless I first reveal it to the prophets to tell you. And seven, God's sovereignty involves a prize. And now I want to introduce a wild card because it doesn't fit in this sequential order because God puts this in anywhere in among these seven things. And you'll love it. You'll love this one. I'm, I'll be surprised if people don't jump to their feet and applaud. Pain. God's sovereignty always includes and encompasses pain. Hallelujah. This is good preaching. This is just awesome. I can see you're just so excited about this. This is when is he going to finish stuff, isn't it? This is, so let me go through. God's plan ultimately is redemption. That means rescue. He has a rescue plan. He wants to rescue you. Yesterday I posted on my Facebook wall the testimony of Russell Brand. Unbelievable. You know that people are going, who's he? Uh, he's the guy that married Katy Perry. Does that help? That helps a younger generation at least. And this guy's now given his life to Christ and says, having been an alcoholic and heroin addict for some 15 years, and now, as he describes it, he's clean because he's met Jesus Christ. And he, he was written off by people. And God has a plan to rescue people. And you might be here today and you might think, well, he can't rescue me. You don't know what I've done. And I'm going to tell you, if he can rescue Brant, he can rescue you. In fact, I reckon he can rescue anyone. Because that guy was gone. And God rescued him. God's purpose is his glory. Is his glory. Who does God use in his plan for your life? Well, initially he used Israel, as we see in the book of Jeremiah. And ultimately he's used Jesus Christ. And Brand's word, Jesus Christ is now more relevant to this world than at any other time. Is an amazing thing for him to say. Very true, by the way. Jesus Christ is the person God is using in his sovereign will for your life. And there's a plea or a promise. The promise is salvation. God promises to save you. And here's, here's the plea. The plea is if you hear of God's sovereign will for your life, here's the plea. Repent and believe. And, it, and it's as if some people are crying out, Oh God, save me, rescue me from this misery that I'm in. I just can never seem to be truly happy. I can never seem to find the peace and fulfillment. I'm, I'm nagged by guilt and shame. I've got stuff going on in my mind and my life that I just can't seem to drown. I can't medicate it. I, I, I can't counsel it out. And it's as if people are hurtling toward a cliff and they're about to go over if they haven't already gone over and God says if you will stop racing toward the edge of that cliff toward the, the very cliff turn around and come to me I will pull you back and I will rescue you and that's exactly what it means to repent to repent means you're going away from God and God says stop and turn around and come to me why would anyone love throwing themselves off a dangerous cliff to a certain death. And God's plea is, stop and come to me. That's, that's all repent means. And the prophecy that Jesus gave 
is a prophecy of judgment. There is a judgment to come. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto everyone to die once, then judgment. Then judgment. And seven, there is a prize. The prize is our inheritance. And we read about that in Ephesians 1.11. And here's the wild card. The Apostle Paul says, as he championed this message of God's sovereignty, he said, oh, by the way, I've, been, I've gone through stuff, but I don't worry about it. I consider it, and these are his exact words, momentary light affliction. Compared to what awaits us, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, whatever I go through in this life is nothing. It is nothing. So here's the question. If the essence of the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied as he, de- as he declared God to be Lord throughout the entire book, one of the major themes, here's the question. Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord? Or is he a counsellor, an advisor, a guide? <laughs> he declared himself to be Lord. The last words before he ascended. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD, audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Jeremiah Part 187 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, nothing is too hard for God. He is sovereign over all. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.